The music of Los Dugans, an old union organizing song, Which Side Are You On? Updated version of that by uh, Los Angeles band, Los Dugans. All right, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our October 14th, 2010 edition of the show. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. Also, don't forget past episodes of the show. We have podcasts of those that you can listen to at your convenience. You just go to the um, page uh, KUCI.org slash talk and scroll down to Out the Rabbit Hole. All our past podcasts are there. All right, in these days when the middle class is shrinking and unions have lost much of their power, it is important in an effort to reverse that, to understand how workers rose up and organized and who were key players making that happen. One whose role needs to be more closely examined is Eleanor Roosevelt. That is done in a brand new book called She Was One of Us, Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Worker. Our special guest today is author Bridget O'Farrell. Ms. O'Farrell is an affiliated scholar with the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project at George Washington University. She is the co-author of Rocking the Boat, Union Women's Voices, 1915 to 1975, and co-editor of Work and Family, Policies for a Changing Workplace. Bridget O'Farrell, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. In, have you heard that song before? Uh, which side are you on? I have. I must say I've not heard that version before. <laughs> <laughs> they are a, a Los Angeles band. We actually had them on the show here, and they're quite passionate about these things. But yes, a definitely a, a different uh, version than what we're, we're used to. All right, so yeah, there's certainly been quite a bit written about Eleanor Roosevelt. W- what inspired you to look at this aspect of her life? Did you feel it had been a bit overlooked? Well, you mentioned that an earlier book that I did with Joyce Cornblue is called Rocking the Boat, Union Women's Voices. And that book was based on oral histories done with over 80 women who were active during the labor movement between 1915 and 1975. And I did some of the interviews, and I, I read all of the interviews, and so many of these women had stories about Eleanor Roosevelt, about going to the White House, going to her home in Valkill or in New York City, about being on the campaign trail with her. And when I went to the history books, I really couldn't find much. And then when I looked at the Eleanor Roosevelt and the Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt um, biographical work, some mention of her work with the Women's Trade Union League, but I really couldn't find very much um, about her work with uh, with these union women. So that got me started um, to look into this and see what I could find. Yes, and, and quite a bit you did find that I was not aware of, and I'm certainly I'm certain most of our listeners are are not aware of. And uh, I think for you know this is one thing that struck me. I think it was in the first chapter of your book. I, I I think for people born into privilege, it is often difficult to develop 
empathy, compassion, and concern for the struggling masses, the working poor. In those who do develop these traits, it seems that frequently there's a key individual who's instrumental in that inculcation. I got from your book that uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's headmistress at her finishing school was certainly a person that was instrumental in that way. Could you talk about her a bit? I'd be happy to. Uh, Madame Sylvestre uh, was the headmistress of the Allen, Allenswood School in England, where Eleanor went as a, as a young girl in her uh, teen years. And she was a very strong influence on her. In fact, Eleanor Roosevelt attributed most of her, uh, her activism and, and progressive ideas to uh, the headmistress. And she certainly uh, introduced her to both a role for women being active and being uh, very intellectually engaged. And she also uh, worked with the labor movement and was involved with groups that, that dealt with labor issues. But I think that it really didn't come home to Eleanor until she, in fact, came home to New York as a young debutante. And uh, in her, the year in which she was coming out at all the parties and the fancy balls, she volunteered in the Rivington Street Settlement House on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And she taught um, young children uh, to dance, and she taught them music. Uh, but she uh, also went to the workplaces and to their homes in the tenements and saw how they were also put to work as very young children in the garment trades. And I think that, um, you know, that really brought it um, all alive. And she actually brought Franklin Roosevelt. He was a young college student. And she brought him down to one of the, settle, uh, one of the uh, tenement houses to go visit one of the children. And she said that it, uh, she believed it really changed his views of the world as well. Yeah, that is a, a theme I think that some people were aware of, and, and, but it's certainly uh, brought home in, in your book is how much he influenced Franklin. And if we could get into this a little more, this whole issue of the, the settlement movement, I think uh, many people don't understand this too well. If, if you could help us understand that a little bit more, what that was all about, and, uh, you know, sort of in the context of the progressive era, and in, in why did elite women like her take, take to this? Well, the wealthy uh, and the wealthy women had a, a long history of, of doing charitable work, of meeting and uh, you know knitting things for people or donating money or or uh, you know giving food to the poor. But as the industrial revolution had taken over, and increasingly more people were finding uh, employment in these dreadful factories with these horrible conditions and working six and seven days a week and. 10 and 15 hours um, a day for just a pittance. Uh, there developed the, the late 1800s, the progressive era uh, began to emerge with a whole new group of educated uh, young people, people who were becoming social workers and lawyers and doctors, and they became very committed to trying to change uh, not only the conditions of the individual people, but looking at the underlying socioeconomic socioeconomic problems that were leading to these horrible um, conditions, particularly from, from migrant workers in the, in the large cities. And uh, the settlement houses were one aspect. Um, the progressives were really uh, challenging the uh, corruption in politics, uh, the inordinate control that business had over um, everyday workers' lives, and the just... Um, and child labor was another an issue that they were very concerned about. So at the peak, there were about 400 of these um, settlement houses in cities around the country, 
where these young professionals came and lived in the houses and worked directly in the communities. And uh, one of the things that Eleanor learned about uh, was how to collect the facts, how to get basic information, how to do tours of workplaces and talk to workers and find out what was really going on, and she considered that essential to identifying the problems and then to finding solutions. Uh, she also came to this from uh, her family tradition. Her uh, uncle, her brother's, uh, her father's brother, was Teddy Roosevelt, who was president of the United States and also uh, headed the, ran as a, on the progressive ticket in 1912. So there was a, a very personal experience on her part uh, and, a, and a very uh, strong, I think, family connection as well to this, this era and trying to uh, make a difference in, in the lives of, of people, of working people. It seems that there, you know, plenty of upper class people were involved in this kind of thing of doing what they saw as, as their duty and uh, engaging in charitable works and helping out. And, and some people, it seemed like, okay, they would kind of do this thing. It's a little part-time thing here and there. And, okay, I, I sort of did my duty. And, and then other people like Eleanor, developed a real passion about it, and, and it became part of who they were. Do you have any, from doing this research, or maybe other people you've looked at as well, I have any idea why some people just, it, it becomes part of who they are, as opposed to some who just, you know, it's a thing they do, and then they kind of move along. Well, it's, it's hard to, to pinpoint what exactly makes a difference for any one individual. But certainly um, for Eleanor, and when she, when she married Franklin, her mother-in-law uh, insisted that she stop this settlement house work. And this uh, was considered dangerous. She might bring disease home to, to her own family. And for the next 10 years, um, Eleanor gave birth to six children and very much assumed uh, many of the roles of the uh, women of her class, where, you know, when they were pregnant, they didn't go out very much, or when they did go out, it was to social functions and to, to family activities. And I think it could very well have happened that she would have just gone into that, uh, that social class role. But I think Eleanor was also very much uh, touched in her own childhood uh, with having lost her father when she was quite, having lost her mother when she was uh, quite young, and then her beloved father died when she was only ten. She had to take care of her younger brother, and um, was raised by a very stern grandmother in a in a very dysfunctional family for all of its wealth and privilege. Uh, there was also a lot of alcoholism and and serious problems. So she she had a in many ways a, a kind of lonely and sad childhood. And I think in the 1920s, when she uh, began volunteering, and Franklin by then had taken on a very active political life, and she met uh, Rose Schneiderman and the women of the Women's Trade Union League in New York City. And she began to see how progressive unions could actually become a part of the solution to solving the problems that, that she had seen from her childhood. And I think she identified very deeply and closely with uh, particularly Rose Schneiderman and Maude Schwartz, as Rose had also, although they, their lives couldn't have been more different, um, on a personal level, they had some similar experiences. Rose lost her, 
beloved father when she was only 10. She had younger brothers to take care of. Her mother, who spoke no English, um, had to put the children in uh, an orphanage uh, until they could uh, come and, and work and help support uh, the family. And so, um, and, and they were in the same neighborhoods, the same settlement uh, areas of the Lower East Side of Manhattan at around the same time. And we do know that these women exchanged stories. They talked about their family life with Eleanor and Franklin. And I think that um, women like Maud Schwartz had grown up uh, in convents in Europe, and she was fluent in several languages, as was Eleanor. And they all had developed uh, a great love of music and theater and and cultural events. And so I think she really, on a very personal level, bonded with these women and saw what they had to offer in terms of solutions. So, And I also think that, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was really a very ex- exceptional uh, woman. And some of the uh, union women, some of whom I interviewed, would say that she just had an extraordinary ability to relate to them. They felt that she listened to them, that she understood them. And so there was a, you know, just a basic level of, of human compassion that had emerged from her experiences as a child, as a wife, as a mother, um, and especially as she became more estranged from, from Franklin in a personal way, mm-hmm. that she found a great deal of, of support uh, with, with the union people that she met. I'm guessing that you know a possible way of connection is is a sort of deep and serious pain. Not that that always works, but that somebody from her background of privilege uh, might not understand the suffering of how you're going to feed yourself week to week. But having lost a parent and felt that deep pain, and you mentioned the alcoholism and that sort of loneliness. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people, you know, pain is pain, and they can well, connect and I that think, way. Yeah, both um, Eleanor and Rose Schneiderman uh, wrote about um, the pain that they suffered and, and how they felt that their, you know, their emotional, their ability to connect um, in some ways was, was limited by that, and in other ways it really helped them uh, to understand uh, how other people felt and how other people saw things. And I think it's also exemplified uh, by Franklin Roosevelt after he uh, came down with polio. Mm -hmm. And his Secretary of Labor, Francis Perkins, uh, wrote that that experience uh, profoundly changed him and his ability to relate to people less fortunate than himself. As a young man, he was quite arrogant and, you know, quite the... um, you know, up-and-coming young political star. And um, after he lost the use of his legs he and set all of his determination and willpower into be a- being able to um, have a full and, and exciting life. Um, but that, that experience, and I think that that's an experience that Eleanor Roosevelt very much shared with him. I mean, she spent several years uh, you know, caring for him and, and helping him um, overcome that very uh, dramatic uh, physical uh, setback yeah. in his life. So I think, yes, I think it very much um, comes out of, um, of, of the different pains and, and loss that she, um, that she went through. 
And instead of uh, letting that be a source of uh, anger and resentment, it becomes, becomes a source of opening the heart and developing compassion and empathy. And yes, very much so, yeah. very much so. We, I mean, we I definitely see people go the other way, but I think that it can be a catalyst for either one, and in her case, fortunately, it was for uh, opening to compassion and empathy. I, yes, I think that's absolutely right, and I do think that she saw a great deal of of energy and love and, and compassion in her uncle. Uh, those were some of the highlights of her childhood, was going to visit the Oyster Bay uh, Roosevelt's, and they had quite a... Uh, rollicking and, and lively family, and she had some wonderful aunts who provided uh, role models and, and for her. And so I, but yeah, it's, uh, we're just very fortunate that the turn she took um, was to one of compassion and, and reaching out and, and have a very deep personal sense on her part of wanting to be useful. Uh, in fact, after Franklin died, she had been in the White House for so many years, when people ask what she was going to do, um, her goal was to, to be useful in life. <laughs> yeah. That, Which and she, she certainly was. <laughs> right, and when we can get into that. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. Robert Larson here speaking with Bridget O'Farrell, and we're discussing her new book. She was one of us, Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Worker. In, is the book actually available yet, uh, Bridget, or are we still got a couple weeks before the release date? Uh, it was, I do believe, released today, and so should be on its way to bookstores, and it can be ordered on Amazon as well. All right. That's She Was One of Us, Eleanor Roosevelt, and The American Worker. And do you have a website or anything else you want to give out to us, uh, Bridget? Uh, there is a website on its way. It's not up quite yet, but it will be soon, and it's www.boferrell.net. And it will have more information about the book, and it will have some of the things that you can't put in a book. Um, there's a video of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, she was one of the keynote speakers at the AFL-CIO merger convention in 1955. And uh, you can see her address the delegates with George Meany on one side and the uh, visionary young president of the United Automobile Workers, Walter Ruther, uh, on her other side. Wow. So there'll be there'll be things uh, things like that uh, in the near future that you can that you can uh, get access to. Yeah, yeah, that I really would like to see that. And so you mentioned the AFL CIO. Eleanor Roosevelt was a proud member of the AFL CIO Newspaper Guild. Uh, tell us about that. Well, Eleanor uh, had done some writing and had had worked on the the New York Democratic um, Women's Newsletter, and when she went to the White House um, in 19, uh, late 1935, she started to write um, a syndic syndicated newspaper column. It was called My Day, and she wrote it every day, six days a week, from the 1935 till shortly before she died in 1962. And on the first anniversary of the, of the newspaper column, she very publicly and very proudly joined the American Newspaper Guild, which was then part of the CIO. And the guild had been formed just a couple of years earlier um, under the um, National Labor Relations Act, which Franklin Roosevelt signed into law in 1935. And it, in, uh, it gave workers in the United States the fundamental right to form and join trade unions. And it was 
very controversial. And as Eleanor was joining the union, and it was covered in the New York Times, uh, that same month in 1935, the auto workers sat down in the um, Fisher Body Plant in Flint, Michigan, and the Women's Emergency Brigade went out on the streets and was met by police with guns and tear gas. Mm-hmm. And the uh, employers were stockpiling weapons and hiring paramilitary forces. And the workers were fighting back in the streets. So the, the famed sit-down strikes had begun, and the strikes spread across the country, and the violence escalated. And in the middle of this, uh, the president's wife uh, joined the union. Wow. So it was, it was quite a statement. Yeah, to say the least. And, uh, you know, I just wish so many... I wish more young people today understood the 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 struggles that uh, workers went through, and that you know people even lost their lives to to get some of the things that we take for granted. Much of which has now actually been rolled back, and that they also need to understand characters like Eleanor Roosevelt, who took that. I mean that that is such a courageous stand, and would be so controversial then as it would be now. And, uh, yeah, wow, that's, that's really something. So, yeah. uh, um, well, and I think it's one of the things that's actually, in, in writing a book like this, it's, it's hard to capture, it's hard to imagine, you know, just how volatile things were. And, um, and I think it's a tribute to the, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, now more commonly called the Wagner Act, um, and to many of the policies of the New Deal that, um, Things have improved. Um, you know, things have gotten better, and and workers, at least in this country, are, are no longer being uh, killed in the streets. But that's not to say that things have not been sliding backwards in the last couple of years. Yeah, one of the things, of course, you mentioned in the book, the percentage of the American workforce that is unionized has uh, slipped down, and we also have seen wages overall in the country stagnate for about 25, 30 years, and that's yeah, a big problem, and uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> it is. It, it, by 1955, uh, the labor movement had grown to 35% of the workforce. You know, over one in three workers belong to a union, and now in the private sector, um, only 7% of workers belong to a union, and in fact, we're down to the levels that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And employer resistance, intimidation, um, over a third of workers in uh, the elections that are held by the National Labor Relations Board, uh, workers get fired. And so they are facing um, a great deal of resistance from employers. And uh, many of of Eleanor's arguments from the past uh, uh, still ring true today. In in terms, one of her quotes, which which I liked, was the... uh, when she was fighting against the right-to-work laws, and she said that the uh, the employers were fighting a uh, predatory and misleading campaigns, and many of the arguments haven't changed. Um, you know, they're very similar today as they were then. Yeah, and still using the sort of Orwellian language, the right-to-work law is <laughs> certainly an Orwellian term. And Which infuriated Eleanor Roosevelt. In uh, She was asked to co-chair this campaign in, in 1958 to stop um, the right-to-work laws, which basically uh, meant that uh, workers didn't have to belong to the union or pay dues, but the union had, if there was a union in the plant, they had to represent them, um, being what she called free riders. 
Mm-hmm. And she most resented the fact that they used the, the language right to work, which came directly from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which she had been so influential in, uh, in um, at guiding through the United Nations, where everyone is guaranteed the right to work. And she said it had nothing to do with human rights or the right to work, but basically was an attempt to destroy labor. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how she saw it. Right, and, and they're still <laughs> doing that on, on all kinds of issues today where they come up with these sort of astroturf organizations and uh, use terms that basically mean the opposite <laughs> of what they're trying to do. And, exactly, exactly. And they've been extremely effective at it. Yeah, so uh, Eleanor was very adamant about this, that uh, workers' rights are human rights. Could you explain a little more, you know, what she meant by that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question, because when Eleanor really grew with the labor movement, and when she started out, it was very local in New York, New York City in particular, and she really saw wages as a you know, she saw unions as a way to help working women with their wages and, and working conditions. When she came, became first lady, her experiences grew very dramatically and as she crisscrossed the country. And she began to work with steel workers and coal miners and electrical workers and migrant workers and um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And by 1940, she had really come to believe that workplace democracy was the was fundamental to democracy. She saw union uh, democracy as a model for the country and then eventually the world because uh, after she left the White House and Franklin had passed away, she, uh, Harry Truman asked her to be a delegate to the United Nations and she uh, became chair of the Human Rights Commission and was a very, very... Um, dynamic team, international team of diplomats and philosophers and um, lawyers, and, and they crafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And she worked very closely with the unions to uh, make sure that that included uh, fundamental uh, worker rights. And one of the other, I think, most important stories in this book is the role that uh, American unions played in the Universal Declaration, which is literally dropped out uh, of the history books. And she worked closely with David Dubinsky of the International Lady Garment Workers Union and Jim Carey of the International Union of Electrical Workers. And when the um, Social and Economic Council was established, they created um, a category uh, giving non-governmental organizations a consultative status, and that meant they could pretty much do everything but vote. They could put items on the agenda, speak at the meetings, you know, argue for um, four different positions. Three of those seven positions were held by uh, labor union groups. So they were very involved in this concept of workers' rights as human rights. And she worked closely with them to make that happen. Yes, and so we think of human rights generally as the, the right to... Uh, not the right not to be murdered, the right not to be imprisoned without charge, and uh, the right to practice uh, religion freely, and those kinds of things. And uh, but Eleanor and and her allies believed that we also had a right to gainful employment and a right to a living wage. 
Yes, I mean, she believed, as did many of others of her colleagues, that you really couldn't have political rights and civil rights if you didn't have economic and social rights. Um, and so that you had to, you know, be able to earn a living for your family in order to, you know, have, uh, have the, the right to vote uh, really means something. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was... Um, they ended up having two separate, when they came to, to trying to develop covenants to, to implement these rights, um, the political rights were much better understood and, and were much more universally um, uh, known than this whole idea of economic and social rights. Um, but she believed that both were, were very uh, important and were critical to making democracy work. Mm-hmm. And so that's... Um, uh, that then, you know, it did become included. Uh, and it has remained co- controversial. The United States still has not um, has not voted to support the, uh, the covenant on economic and social rights. Yeah. We're one of, uh, one of four countries. I think Iran and a couple of others are, are in there with us. But those economic and social rights um, have not been... Uh, uh, universally accepted in the United States at all. Well, and you see it in the uh, slipping uh, standard of living and the shrinking middle class. And I don't know if you <laughs> saw the recent uh, data in that uh, s- several countries in Latin America now have a smaller gap between the rich and poor than in the United States. I, I, well, and the gap between rich and poor in the United States is growing. Yeah. Uh, it is now... Um, Know, almost back to what we would call the Gilded Age. I believe it was um, just, you know, as late as 1972 when 1% of the top earners in the country had about 7 or 8% of the, um, of the national wealth, and now they have 25, almost 25%. Um, so that gap between, between rich and poor is expanding in this country. Yes. And that's a, that's a very, I think, a very sad statement. Right, and so many of the gains that were made because of the work of people like Eleanor Roosevelt are, are to a degree, slipping away, and we need to get very active and uh, bring it all back. We're speaking today with Bridget O'Farrell and talking about her book, She Was One of Us, Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Worker. Uh, decades before the Civil Rights Marches, Eleanor Roosevelt was concerned about racism, race relations, and equality. What were some specific actions uh, she took in uh, this area? Uh, I'm really glad you asked about that because it's an important part of Eleanor Roosevelt's story and it overlaps very uh, closely with her work with the unions. Um, She did become a very strong advocate uh, for civil rights and she um, took on great personal personal risk uh, to uh, to advocate uh, for civil rights. She got to know and become friends with a number of the leaders in the 1930s, the head of the NAACP and Mary McLeod Bethune, who was a uh, very dynamic um, African-American educator. And uh, she began to speak out on racial issues. And one of the things um, that happened in... Uh, I believe it was 1937, was that Howard University had invited Marian Anderson to come and sing uh, in Washington. And Marian Anderson was a world-renowned um, contralto, uh, an opera singer who had, who had sung for kings and queens around, around the world. 
and they uh, tried to secure the uh, beautiful Constitutional Hall, which was owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution. And the DAR refused to let Marian Anderson sing because she was black. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor was a member of the DAR, as uh, many in the Roosevelt family were. And so she protested. She, you know, talked to people. She went behind the scenes to try and have this policy changed. And the DAR refused. And so Eleanor did two things. First, she helped to arrange with uh, the Park Service to have Marian Anderson sing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial um, on, on, on the mall on Easter Sunday morning, where thousands and thousands of people could come and hear her sing. And then um, she resigned from the DAR. And she did it in an interesting way. She wrote in her column that when you belong to an organization, you needed to believe in its principles and its ideals. And if those changed or you uh, could no longer believe in them, then you needed to try and change the organization. And if that didn't work, then you needed to quit. She didn't name the DAR. She didn't talk about Marian Anderson. Um, she just wrote this in her column. And, of course, the next day it was, you know, front, front page news everywhere uh, that she had resigned from the DAR over a racial issue. And um, she was vilified in the South. Mm. Uh, she was, um, you know, she fought very hard for the anti-lynching laws. She worked with Randolph to um, establish... Um, the executive order uh, creating the Fair Employment Practices Commission to integrate the uh, workforce in the uh, war industries uh, during the war. She, um, uh, she, she worked very hard to try and uh, integrate housing. She thought that was very crucial. And education. Eventually, in, in the 1950s, she went on the board of the NAACP and was very helpful in as they were working on the... Um, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund was developing the case of Brown versus the Board of Education. But the Ku Klux Klan put a bounty on her head. The Texas White Citizens Committee threatened to run her out of town on a rail. Um, bomb exploded in a church uh, where she was going to speak. But she would not be intimidated. She drove to her meetings and to her um, the summer school, the schools and the churches where she was going, she didn't want police protection, although sometimes they provided it even when she didn't want it. But she refused to be intimidated. And we didn't have so there's secret. a whole there are wonderful stories about Eleanor and and the efforts that that she made in this area. Yeah, there was no Secret Service then either. Like not the, really, not not like there is today. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so this was a very courageous act. And and what year again was this? That she well, it, it you know it really it started in the 1930s, yeah. and it went through um, just in 1962, several months before she died. The Congress on Racial Equality and you know the new civil rights groups were developing, and they asked her to chair hearings on the Freedom Riders, and these were young men and women, black and white, who were um, getting on buses and riding into the South and crossing state lines uh, because there had been a Supreme Court case. Um, ending racial segregation on the buses. And um, they were met at bus stations by police with guns. They were arrested. They were beaten. Um, and she chaired um, the hearings to expose what was happening and um, wrote in her, her last book that it was one of the most painful experiences of her life because she had 
thought we were making progress, and um, she, of course, couldn't foresee um, the Civil Rights Act that was to come and, and the, the progress that was to come, but she was, she was just heart sick at the level of violence and resistance. Uh, when she had been working on this, you know, for for decades, um, so uh, it, it greatly saddened her. But the action with the DAR, though, that what year was that? That was that was in the late 1930s, 1937, I believe. Yeah. So I mean, that was, you know, the the military was still segregated at that time. Yes, the military uh, was not integrated until Harry Truman. Yeah, I mean, uh, came into office. There's a wonderful I, one of my. Um, favorite stories is a, a picture in the book of Eleanor at the opening of the CIO canteen. And these were social halls that different organizations opened up all across the country for soldiers who were either going off to war or were coming back from the war and needed places to stay before they got home. And, you know, young girls would come in and play cards and dance and they would have music and, and food and and so the CIO opened one in Washington, D.C. in 1944. And there's Eleanor, who was surrounded by soldiers and sailors and pretty young women. And in the, the corner is a very young man in an uh, army uniform, a private, with a banjo, and it's Pete Seeger. Oh. And, and Pete is playing for the group, and it was hugely controversial, and she was vilified across the country. Because when you look closely at the soldiers and sailors, they're black and white. Oh. It was uh, the CIO insisted that it be racially integrated, and that kind of social mixing of the races was something that was uh, just really um, feared and hated um, in the South. And so, I mean, one of the things that is so wonderful uh, about her is that she not only did things on the White House level, on the United Nations level, she really believed that you had to do things right in your own backyard, and she lived in the city of Washington. And if I could just read a, a quote to you for, for a moment, because it comes back to your question about human rights. When she was asked, where after all do human rights begin, she answered, in small places close to home, the neighborhood, the school, the factory, farm, or office. Unless they have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. And without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. Wow. So she, yeah. she practiced what she preached. Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, some later uh, presidential politics after she was out of the White House. Uh, be because of some of the uh, actions... Uh, President John Kennedy ultimately took in the direction Bobby Kennedy was moving in his presidential run. So, some saw them, like the Roosevelts, as traitors to their class. But uh, Eleanor was, was not an enthusiastic early supporter of John Kennedy's uh, presidential bid. W why was that? She wasn't. Uh, and she had watched... Uh, John Kennedy as a, a young senator and as a congressman in the 1950s. And she was, she was concerned. She didn't feel that he was as committed as she would want um, a president to be um, on issues like civil rights. Uh, she didn't feel that he had stood up to McCarthy 
when Senator Joe McCarthy was um, holding his hearings and, and accusing people of being communists. Um, she worried about um, his Catholic religion, that that would, that would cause problems, which, of course, it did in the campaign, problem that he overcame. But it, it was, she was a visionary. She was also a very practical politician. And she, she worried about that. And John Kennedy's father had, um, Joe Kennedy, had served in the um, Roosevelt administration. And I don't know a lot about his, his, um, his tour of duty there, but um, she didn't think a, a great deal of him, and she worried about the influence um, that, that uh, Joe Kennedy would have um, on his son. And... Uh, she had a candidate that she did very strongly believe in, which was um, Adelie Stevenson. Mm-hmm, yeah. She supported him and uh, really felt that he was the better candidate. And by 1960, um, she and others were encouraging Stevenson to run again, but he had already lost twice. And he didn't, um, he wasn't very effective in, in 1960. But uh, once Kennedy won um, the, the Democratic nomination and the labor leaders very enthusiastically um, be, supported him and her good friend, um, this was one of the surprises to me in this research, that one of the people she was closest to uh, was Walter Ruther in the UAW. And they wholeheartedly backed Kennedy. And Kennedy came to visit her at her home in Valkyll. Uh, he knew that she she was a very important force in Democratic politics. And the race was going to be tight, and he needed her support. So he came um, to visit her. And she was impressed with the conversation. Uh, she um, agreed to support him. And she, as she watched him over the campaign, she, uh, she became more comfortable and, and became... Uh, more active in his campaign. She did go to, to several states uh, around the country to campaign for him. And by the time of his inaugural address, uh, she was really hopeful uh, that he was bringing a kind of youth and enthusiasm and, and intellectual um, support uh, to the White House th- that they needed. So she then did work, uh, work with his administration. Yeah, and she was, uh, I think she, by the time Bobby Kennedy was running for president, uh, she had already died. She died in... Yes, yes, she died in, um, on, de- on November 7th, 1962, and John Kennedy died um, about a year later. Yeah, because uh, I, I, when I look at the footage of, of Ken, uh, Bobby Kennedy's campaign, I, it, was, it seemed like he was definitely moving in that direction of, of some of the things that were near and dear to Eleanor's heart and the uh, being involved with the United Farm Workers and, you know, mm-hmm. concerned about the poor and it, uh, you know, just uh, another person from a life of privilege who was able to seem to open up. But, uh, yeah, we're, uh, we're just about out of time here, Bridget. Is anything else you want to leave us with, want to make sure that we understand about Eleanor Roosevelt and her uh, relationship with uh, the American worker? Well, I think that uh, the time is, is just right. We're now this year. is the 75th anniversary of the, um, of the National Labor Relations Act. 
And I think it's it's a really good time to reflect on, on where workers are today, where the labor movement is today, and to look at um, the kinds of not only inspirational words that Eleanor Roosevelt offered, but the kind of actions that she took. And when she addressed the CIO convention, the last one in 1954, she told the delegates that we have got, uh, we can't just talk, we've got to act. And I think those are the words that I would want to leave your listeners with. We can't just talk, we need to act. Act. Yes. And uh, uh, Bridget O'Farrell, a great job with the book, and thanks so much for being with us today. She was one of us, Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Worker. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right, and uh, best of luck, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll all be looking for this book out at the stores, okay? Great. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. All right. Yes, Bridget O'Farrell on that book. She was one of us, Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Worker. So, yes, as I have said numerous times, we've lost a lot of ground uh, that uh, we've made as workers in this country, but uh, we can get it back. We need to wake up and we need to not just talk. We need to act as uh, Bridget uh, quoted Eleanor Roosevelt. So get active and get out there. Find out what's going on. Find out uh, what's being taken from us. Find out what's going on in this election about uh, just a couple weeks away, about three weeks away, and uh, follow the money trail. Where's the money coming from? Are there big, huge corporations spending millions and millions of dollars to affect this campaign and to do things that might not be good for uh, everyday workers? Uh, Think about that. All right, so we're out of time. Uh, We've got uh, the usual 5 o'clock fair coming up, Counterspin and Planetary Radio. Matt Kaplan will not be here today, so I'll be uh, running the board, but we'll be playing the, uh, the same programming, and you will enjoy it. And I've got some other great interviews coming up in the coming uh, weeks. I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash R.G. Larson. And don't forget those uh, podcasts, past shows. I know some of you every now and then will say, oh, I heard a little bit of this interview you did about a month ago. Oh, well, we've got many of those up as podcasts that you can listen to at your convenience. And you just go to KUCI.org slash talk, scroll down to Out the Rabbit Hole, and you just hit the little podcast link, and you'll have um, all the shows that come up, and you can just choose the one you want and listen to all of them if you'd like. Okay. All right. Yes, we've got to go to a message here for you, and then we'll get the uh, counterspin coming up for you. So this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.com. Dot org. Robert Larson saying, I'll be talking to you next week.